So, tender friend, if thou desirest to travail on with safety in the way and path of Christianity, from its birth to the cross and from the cross to the crown, thou must walk in the light and daily learn of the grace of God within and keep on thy armor, the light within. These words were written by William Schuen in his book, The True Christian's Faith and Experience Briefly Declared. Schuen was an esteemed early friend and a contemporary of George Fox and William Penn. In this podcast series, Henry Jason will present a careful study of this work. We hope thee will enjoy this episode and the ones that follow it. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting conservative series that we are beginning today. This is session number one. We are doing a reading presentation and study of a work by William Schuen entitled The True Christian's Faith and Experience Briefly Declared. My name is Henry Jason. I'm a member of Middleton Friends Meeting in Columbiana, Ohio, but I live in San Mateo, California, which is about 20 miles south of San Francisco on the San Francisco Peninsula. This work, The True Christian's Faith and Experience, basically gives a very poor understanding of what our Quaker ancestors understood as to what a true Christian is and how he should live in distinction to those who are called Christian, at least in name. The series is meant specifically for conservative Wilburite friends to basically enhance our ability to proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We will meet every week at 7.30 p.m. New York City time for about an hour. There are a number of modern reprints available and I'm going to just show a couple of these because this book has been reprinted ever since it first came out in the 17th century. This is a scholar select copy, and this one is put out by BiblioLife. But both of these have very small print. There is also one here put out by Forgotten Books, which is larger print, but it now is out of print, at least the last time I looked. But again, you can find this work online. Those two online copies can be found on the ohioyearlymeeting.org website. I will be using one of those reprints on that website. It will be the 2007 online one, which is easier for me to read. I have some visual difficulties, better or worse, at various times. But I should mention that that work does have a number of typographical errors in it. There was one kind of glaring error where it should have been shining and the word printed was sinning. Just have to be careful for things like that. As I have been mentioning, we will also attempt to use these live transcripts on these recordings, and that's the first time we've ever done this. If it's on your screen, you can also drag that to some other place on your screen, as well as seeing it on the side. This interaction is basically meant to be between conservative friends, since our intention is for us conservatives to learn and enable ourselves to express various aspects of our faith in a more detailed way. But hopefully this will benefit everyone and others are welcome to participate as well. I can see there's a number of people here who are quite interested, so that's good. It's more of a presentation than an open kind of discussion. I'm already leading the same series at a liberal friends meeting in California. And I've been doing that for about a year and a half. That's a very different kind of presentation than I would like this presentation to be. 
because I don't think we should get into details where people are quibbling about they don't agree with this or they don't agree with that. We as conservatives hope to conserve our basic faith from the beginning, what it has been, one of belief, not one of theory. First question, who was William Schuin? Well, we don't know much about him. Just have a few facts, and I'll just mention those. He wrote several short treatises, short small books. We know that he was born about 1631, probably in London. That's about seven years after George Fox was born, and he died in 1695. Again, just about four years after George Fox was born. He was a contemporary of George Fox. He appears to have been a pin maker, a maker of pins in London. As I said, he wrote several books and several short treatises. The other most important one that usually is broken into two different writings is called Counsel to the Christian Traveler and Meditations and Experiences. Those two are very good works. I've several times read Meditations and Experiences and still get a lot out of it. We know that he was arrested at least once and was put into a counter in London. A counter was a type of prison. So we have at least one record of him being imprisoned. I don't remember where I read this. It might actually have been in George Fox's journal, where George Fox speaks very well of him. That's about what I can say about what we know about William Schuin. He's been reprinted quite a few times up through the 19th century, and now he's enjoying another popularity in these recent years. And um, how do you spell his last name? Uh, the name is spelled S H. E-W-E-N, Schuen. Thank you. This work has 20 different sections in it with three different prefaces at the beginning. These prefaces are somewhat complex, but I think they're very important for us to go through them. I was thinking of maybe saving them for the end because of their complexity, but I think they're important because they really give you some understanding of the context in which he is writing this work. This work was first published in 1675. The first preface basically talks about the world he was living in and the experience of Quakers in that world. It also speaks about his own conversion to Quakerism. The second preface has a number of biblical citations he uses that are very important to the understanding of the whole work. And the third preface is to those who are Christians in name, but maybe only in name. He uses the term titular, T-I-T-U-L-A-R, related to the word title, but he also uses the word nominal. And what he means by titular or nominal is in name or in name only. They are Christians in name, but their actions, how they live, what they say, even if they have the Bible memorized, they are not true Christians. And that's the point that this whole work is about, becoming a true Christian. One thing I want to emphasize, especially as we're reading that first preface, but throughout the whole work, is that Quakers were being severely persecuted by the government and by the other churches of their time. Many were whipped, thrown into prisons, died in prisons, filthy prisons, put into pillory, into stocks. Many had a very hard time. There are even cases of Quaker preachers who had their ears cut off for preaching. And I'm sorry, I can't recall who it was. There was one such preacher that happened to him, and he continued to preach, and then they cut off the stubs afterwards, a second time. 
to become a Quaker at this time was a real commitment. I think the only thing you can really compare it to is what those first Greeks, Romans, and Jews experienced when they were becoming Christians, when Christianity was an outlawed religion in the ancient Roman Empire. It was a decision you knew what you were getting into, could be severely persecuted and killed. Oh, I should also say that many had their property or all their property taken from them. and for various reasons that when Quakers were following their own principles. So all of this is very important to understand this background in which this work was written in 1675. A dozen years later, with the Toleration Act, things became much better. But even then, there were still problems for several decades. But uh, at this time, this is a tough time. In reading this text, to save time, I'm going to translate the text into modern English as I go along, so that if you're looking at the text, you'll see that I'm making changes immediately, or sometimes in addition to what's there. There are occasions when I'm not certain myself. I should say also, I have a background in linguistics, teaching English as a second language, teaching English as a foreign language. I'm by profession a speech pathologist, speech and language pathologist, speech therapist, and also have a master's degree in Slavic languages. So I've been very interested in languages all my life. Just a comment here, languages change over time. On the Ohio Yearly Meeting website, if you go under educational media and then go to library, you'll see there something, uh, oh, we just changed that name yesterday. Conrad, I'm forgetting what I changed it to. (laughs) Uh, I think it's called an aid to understanding 17th century words and grammar. There are two different short papers there, one showing about 30 or so different points in grammar, the grammar of 17th century English, and the other was a list of some of the most basic functional words and their meaning. This is maybe about... uh, I'm not sure how many words there. I didn't count them, 40 words or whatever. Those are some very helpful things to glance at, just so you have some idea of being the language. Too often I've seen people misunderstand because they accept what they're reading in an older Quaker writing as meaning the same thing as modern English when it doesn't. There's a word that comes over and over again that's misunderstood, and that's the word perfect, P-E-R-F-E-C-T. Perfect had a different meaning in 17th century English than it does today. It almost never meant perfect in the modern sense. It basically meant complete, completed, fully developed, reached its goal. And that's the understanding. When we are told in the Bible, King James Version, to be perfect, we are told to be fully spiritually complete as much as we can. That's the sense. We're not talking about perfection because everyone reaching their highest level of spiritual attainment will vary. God doesn't expect more from us than he has given us to go to, whatever that highest level is, that end result. I've been thinking of if people are interested, maybe they can also help me making a glossary for this work little vocabulary list of some of the words, but I think the best way to do that is just to email me some words that they might be interested in learning about. 
if I had someone I knew was going to be here consistently, <clears throat> and you can just write these all down as we go along, we'd do that. But I'd rather have people pay more attention to understanding the text than worrying about making a glossary or vocabulary list. By the way, my email address is henry at henryjason.org. Henry at henryjason.org. I'm going to share the screen now. Can everyone see this? Yes. Okay. This is the title page, actually just part of it on this 2007 online version, but we'll read it and I'm not going to say much about it. The true Christian's faith and experience briefly declared concerning God, Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, the Gospel, and doctrines thereof, and teachings thereof. Also, the titular or nominal Christian's faith and profession examined, tried, and judged, written for the confirmation and consolation of the one, and for the information in order to the restoration and salvation of the other, by William Schuon. And then the quotes from the Bible. He is, this is the King James Version, he is not a Jew that is one outwardly, Romans 2.28. He that hath a bride is the bridegroom, John 3, verse 29. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life, John 5, verse 6. Darkness is past, and the true light now shineth, First John 2, verse 8. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Isaiah 9, verse 2. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. John 3, verses 20 and 21. And this is a reprint of the London edition that was printed in 1681 through 85. But again, the initial was in 1675. And this is uh, copied from an 1830 edition. One comment I'd like to make here is that throughout this work, in all 20 sections, he compares the faith of the true Christian with that of the nominal Christian, the Christian in name. And you'll see that again and again in all 20, I believe, of the different sections that we have here. And this is the reprinted version by Inner Light Books in San Francisco in 2007. And this is the contents page. Concerning God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, the doctrine of repentance, mortification, sanctification, justification, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the universal love of God to all mankind, election and reprobation, temptation, a holy life, the motion of the Spirit of God and the spirit of the old serpent in the hearts of men, revelation, the gospel or glad tidings, grace and living under it, growing up in it, and of possibility of falling away from it, outward and inward miracles, perfection, a few words by way of advice and counsel to such as believe in the light and desire to be children of it. I'm going to just quickly do a little translation of what we just read here. The doctrine of repentance, that is the true teaching about uh, a true transformation that is required of anyone becoming a true Christian. 
Mortification has to do with putting to death all those cravings in us for more worldly things that separate us from God. Sanctification has to do with becoming holy, making us holy. Justification has to do with making us just or righteous. Same word. One word is from Latin. The Greek word is different, but it means making us upright in God's eyes as to how we are acting. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism has to do with immersion, immersion into the nature of God, universal love of God to all mankind. Election and reprobation has to do with those who believe in predestination, which was condemned by early Quakers, that there are some who are destined to be in heaven and some who are destined to be in hell, and Quakers oppose this completely. Temptation, a holy life, the motion of the Spirit of God, that means the movements of the Spirit of God and the spirit of the old serpent, Satan, the devil, in the hearts of men, in the inner essence of people, in their consciousness, in their consciousness. Revelation, the gospel or glad tidings, that basically means good news. Grace and living under it, growing up in it. Grace often has to do with favor. God's favor, giving us favor, little kindnesses, helping us along, and of the possibility of falling away from that grace. Outward and inward miracles. Outward has to do with physical, external, outside, outward, like physical miracles where people get healed. Inward miracles are those kinds of miracles where someone is changed, transformed inwardly in their minds, in their way of thinking. And he will talk about how that's even a greater miracle than the physical miracles that the Bible relates. I mentioned perfection. That is reaching the highest, fully developed spiritually. That's basically what it means, reaching perfection, as high as one can go. And then a few words by way of advice and counsel to such, to such people as believe, put their trust in the light, that illumination, that illuminator, Christ Jesus, and desire to be children of it, of that light. Any comments so far? This is Kim Henry. I was taken by that last statement of Shuan of being children of the light. You think of being children of God and certainly the light of the spirit as God, but it, it's an arresting thought. Ah, I should mention something here. Before Quakers came to call themselves friends, friends of Christ, they were calling themselves children of the light or children of light. Again, the light is Christ that spirit of Christ. He's basically saying becoming a true Christian by following, obeying, listening to, trying to discern what that eternal divine spirit that is in everyone from God is trying to do. And that's a, a quote from scripture too. I can't say what verse it is, but there's a scripture that talks about being children of the light. Yes, it's in the gospel according to John. I don't remember now either, but it is in the gospel. Okay, this is the first preface. Actually, this is the longest one on the difficult side in some ways because you have to really understand the context in which he's writing this. The Quakers are being persecuted by the other Christians around them as well as the government. I'm going to stop every now and then. I'm going to be translating this, maybe making a, a couple of comments here and there, but then I will stop and ask for if there are any questions or comments. 
to the reader. Friend, you may know that in this part of the world called Christianity, the name Christian is, is very famous in that there are few there but who desire to be called by that name. And a high and great profession of Christianity abounds among the diverse denominations there, all coveting the name of Christian. But the Christian life, the Christ-like life, and the nature of Christianity is lacking much. And the fruits and effects of the Holy Spirit of Christianity are lacking much among them all. And the contrary abounds much, through which an evil savor is sent forth to the nations round about who are called heathens, pagans, and infidels, non-believers. I'm just recalling that William Penn says in one of his writings, to be a Christian is to be Christ-like. That's a true Christian. And that's what I think Shion is saying here. For there is scarce any sort of wickedness to be found upon the face of the whole earth, which is not done and committed in this part of the world called Christendom, Christianity, whereby the Jews and pagans, instead of being converted, are strengthened and confirmed in their infidelity, ignorance, blindness, and idolatry. For where this nominal or titular Christian, Christian in name only, has prevailed, as among the Americans, the Indians in America, North America, he has sent forth such a stink and ill savor through his abominable inhuman practices that the name of Christ is blasphemed and the Christian religion hated by many that have heard the fame and report of Christianity. So he's again referring to what has happened in the history of indigenous peoples in North America, South America, as to so many of them being forced to become Christians against their will. I'm thinking of those who are leaders who were burnt, just killed again and again by these nominal Christians. Had the life of Christ and the nature of Christianity been known and lived in by all that everybody that professes that name, Christianity would have been like a fruitful field and like a pleasant garden, enclosed garden, and like a walled-about vineyard full of trees of righteousness and plants of God's own right-hand planting. And the tree of life, that's the tree of life mentioned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, would have flourished among them in the middle of them. And the leaves of it would have healed the nations round about. And Christianity would have been like a city set upon a hill which cannot be hidden, and like a lamp that burns, being fed with sweet oil, and like a glorious light that shines. And many would have fled to it, like to a city of refuge, and have walked in the light of that city, and would have seen and beheld their good works, and would have glorified their Father who is in heaven. And they would have lain down like a flock of harmless lambs together, solacing themselves in the green pastures of life and salvation, in the low valley, and on the top of that holy mountain, where no destroyer exists, nor anyone can make them afraid. Where the lion eats straw like the ox, and where the sucking child plays on the hole of the ass, and the weaned child puts his hand on the cockatrice's den, a cockatrice is a serpent, without hurt, and the earth would have been full of the knowledge of the Lord, like the waters that cover the sea. 
throughout this work, as we have just been reading in these last lines, there are many, many references to various passages in the Bible again and again. Sometimes, as uh, Mark Duffy has certain passages as in Isaiah, and elsewhere, they're just phrases that, if you can recall, they occur throughout the Bible or in his memory. He's bringing them forth as part of what he has to say, almost in everyday language. And this song would have been in Christianity, as in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, salvation, God will appoint for walls and bulwarks, end quote. And the gates of it would have been open to them, like a righteous nation that keeps the truth, that guards the truth, that they might have entered in and dwelt safely. This would have been the state of Christianity. Again, he's making the distinction between nominal Christianity and true Christianity. But alas, alas, the quite contrary appears. Instead of being like a fruitful field and like a pleasant enclosed garden, and like a vineyard planted and walled about, bearing fruit for God, and flourishing with trees and plants of his own right hand planting, it is like a deserted howling wilderness, full of briars and thorns and hurtful weeds, whereby the good seed that was sown is choked, and the noble plant degenerated from, and become the plant of a strange vine, which brings forth sour grapes, which makes the wine of Sodom, which fills the whore's cup, whereby nations are made drunk. All of these, again, references to well, the Old Testament and especially to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. But I'm saying here, he's making a clear distinction between what Quakers were experiencing by those Christians in power compared to the suffering of friends, Quakers, in their time. And instead of being like a flock of harmless lambs and lying together in love and unity, feeding in the green pastures of life and salvation in the low valley and atop of the holy mountain, where no destroyer they are like to a herd of swine that is possessed and runs violently into the sea and that wallows in the mire. And like the wolf, bear, lion, asp, and cockatrice, which the little child has no power over. But their devouring and poisonous nature remains, which makes them prey one upon another, bite and devour one another, hate and murder one another, specifically under the profession and name of Christ and Christianity. He's saying that it's because of their beliefs of what Christ wanted that these nominal Christians were persecutors or persecuting others like the Americans. So, instead of being like a city whose walls are salvation and like the heavenly Jerusalem, they are like Sodom, Gomorrah, and Babylon. And instead of being like a lamp that burns being fed with sweet oil and a light that shines, they are like a lamp that's gone out and a candle under a bed or bushel, which gives no light to others. Instead of the meekness, love, brotherly kindness, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, forgiveness, innocence, goodness, harmlessness, righteousness, and heavenly-mindedness of Jesus, which he and his followers were and are endued with, quite contrary, abounds. And yet, the profession of Jesus inwards is not lacking in these nations called Christianity, so that Isaiah's vision, sight, or prophecy is fulfilled in this. 
quote, the show of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. They do not hide it. Woe unto their soul. Woe to their soul. For they have rewarded evil to themselves. Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they who lead thee cause thee to err, cause you to err, and destroy the way of your paths, etc. In this day the prophecy is fulfilled in Christendom. Quote, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our approach. These seven women are, or may fitly be compared to, the perfect, the complete, full number of all the nominal Christians of all the diverse denominations and opinions in, in all of Christianity who profess, acknowledge the name of Christ, and call Christ their husband, but play the harlot with other lovers, and eat their own bread, which is the forbidden fruit, and the old gathered manna, and wear their own apparel, which they have sewed together with their own hands, and formed by their own inventions, to cover their nakedness and transgression. Again, the reference here is to Genesis in Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, when the serpent told them that they could be like gods if they ate that fruit off that tree, a tree that God told them not to, they then realized what they had done, and that's when they had to put clothing on. But the Lord God, whom they have transgressed against, has come down to walk in his garden, and he finds it overgrown with weeds, thorns, briars, and thistles. But neither the weeds, trees, or fig tree leaves of profession, though sewn together and made like a garment of modesty and righteousness, can hide from all his eye-seeing eye, God's eye-seeing eye. The word, Adam, where art thou, is sounded forth, and he and all his works are found out, and the hidden things of Esau are found out, and the earth can no longer cover her slain. But the blood of righteous Abel cries, and the souls under the altar cry. And that's from the book of Revelation. How long, Lord, how long will it be before you avenge yourself on them who dwell on the earth, and yet profess your name and your son's name, and say, Thus says the Lord, when they have not heard your voice, nor seen your shape, nor known your wondrous works in the deep, nor regarded the operation of your hand. Again, I want to emphasize how he's really making a very strong statement. Here it's very much against being nominal Christians, knowing, knowing the Bible, reading the Bible, following whatever acts, uh, rituals, or rites, but really their hearts are very far from him in terms of how they persecute others or cause evil. Because of these things, the cry of the righteous has been to the Lord in all ages and is now in this age, specifically because of the hatred and bloodiness of Cain about religion and worship, and because of the envy of Esau about the blessing, and because the great whore who sits upon the waters and rides upon the beast and calls herself the Lamb's wife and holds forth her golden cup full of abominations, with which the nations, specifically those called Christianity, are made drunk, has so far prevailed. Again, all those last um, comments are from the book of Revelation. And because the waters on which the whore sits 
which are nations, tongues, and people, and the beast, the animal on whom she rides, takes her golden cup to be the cup of blessing, and for the gold that is tried in the fire and the wine of fornication for the new wine of the kingdom. It's, it's hypocrisy. If you read enough of the writings of the earliest friends, you can really understand one of their major uh, points was the hypocrisy they saw in all the Christian denominations around them, saying one thing but acting in a very different way. I think that's very important to understand. If you do read more in early friends' writings, that hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy, was a very important point, and they were so much for truth. The word Quakerism hadn't been invented yet. Quakers spoke of their Quakerism as truth, capital T, as well as small t. You continue here. And because this great whore is taken to be the bride, the lamb's wife, the harlot for the spouse of Christ, the titular, the nominal Christian for the true, and finally because light is called darkness, and darkness light, good evil, and evil good. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of how Satan clothes himself to look like an angel, an angel of light. That's what we're talking about here being one thing, but looking like something very different. I say, because of these things, the cry and breathing, that is the prayers, the silent prayers. Breathing meant a silent, a silent prayer. I say, because of these things, the cry and breathing of the souls of the righteous is to the Lord, that he would take away the veil that is spread over the hearts of all people by transgression, by sin and open the blind eye, and unstop the deaf ear, so that his glory may be seen, and his voice heard, and the two great mysteries of godliness and iniquity be revealed, and that many may come, and that people may come to look upon him whom they have pierced, and mourn over him, that is Christ, specifically him whom they have kissed with their lips. Again, a reference to Judas kissing Christ, as about the just as the Roman soldiers are about to uh, arrest him, so that they would know who it was that they were to arrest. Him whom they have kissed with their lips, but betrayed in their own hearts and their own conscience. And so come to that godly sorrow which leads to repentance and a turning to him, of being converted to him who redeemeth, who liberates them from all these things and brings them into favor with God again and gives the right to eat some off the tree of life and to enter into the gate of the city, specifically the heavenly Jerusalem, which that all may partake of and inherit is the desire of the true Christian who has received the good news, the gospel of peace and goodwill for all men, the which that you may attain to take the counsel of one himself, William Schuon, who was a child of wrath as well as others, and once lived in the nature of Cain and Esau, He's talking about himself. He was that way at one time. Henry? Yes. Going back to um, turning unto him who redeemeth from all these things. And you translated that as liberates. Ah, yes. Uh, that word... I would translate it a different way. To redeem means to buy back. So it's not that Christ liberates us to go and do as we please. He buys us back so that we become his property. Let me put this into context in the Roman Empire. 
slavery was very different in the Roman Empire than it was, say, in our country. A slave could even own a business as a slave. Or if he got money, he could buy his freedom and he could be liberated in that sense. And so it literally means buy back. But in a spiritual context, it means being freed, to free, to liberate. So often in the New Testament, friends in their writings have looked at that in the sense of being free from sinning, free from the inclination to sin. Christ is the liberator, the redeemer. It literally does mean what he's saying, Conrad, but most of the time it has a sense of liberation. It says Moses redeemed the people of Israel from Egypt. He liberated them from their slavery in Egypt. It's important to really understand the sense of redeem as redemption and redeemer, all having to do with liberation, freeing from that deep sinful inclination for us to not do the will of God, but to do our own wills that are in opposition to God. This will come up again and again in this work, but I'm happy they brought it up here because it is a word that we really need to look at and we will get to at some point. Let's just finish this sentence here. Oh, I didn't read that note, but okay. Uh, the council once lived in the nature, okay. and was one of them. He himself was one of them in whom the whore sat, that Satan in him. And he was deceived. Shun was deceived by her golden cup, and he drank some of the wine of her fornication. And he once took the whore to be the lamb's wife, the harlot to be the true woman. And he took Babylon for, uh, to be Jerusalem. He took Antichrist to be Christ, the nominal Christian to be the true Christian. So he's talking about himself being in that state at one time. But now he knows that the Son of God has come in a good understanding given, whereby he knows him who is true, that is Christ Jesus. And he is in him, in that spirit of Christ, which is true. And he has received wisdom to trace the eagle in the air and the serpent on the rock and the adulterous woman who eats the forbidden fruit and wipes her mouth and says, she hath done no evil. And he is now acquainted with the wiles and mysterious workings of him who is more subtle than all the beasts of the field, all the animals of the field, wild animals. And he has come to the rending, the tearing off that veil, and the taking off the covering, and the falling off the scales from his eyes, and to the revelation of the two great mysteries of godliness and iniquity. I say unto you, whoever you are that read these words and know not the same, turn your mind inward, commune with your own heart, with your own conscience and consciousness, and be still, be quiet. Stand in awe and do not sin. Fear to offend that Holy Spirit which examines your heart and love the reproofs of it. For it is the way of life and wait low in it until your that eye is open in you that can see God's salvation. He has appointed for all the, to the ends of the earth. Then you will rejoice in that, and you will cease from man whose breath is in his own nostrils and speaks the studied inventions of his own corrupt heart and the traditions of his forefathers. And yet says, thus says the Lord, when he has not spoken to him, nor heard his voice, nor seen his shape, but he speaks the conceptions, the conceivings and divinations of his own brain and the uncertain notions of his own spirit. 
listening and hearkening to this and following of this in the individual and in the general population is the universal ground and root from which spring all the diversities of denominations and erroneous opinions upon the face of the earth. And from this arises all the willing and running, the egotistical righteousness, will worship, doing what you want worship, voluntary, willful humility, and intrusions into things which are not seen in the vision of God, but being vainly puffed up in a fleshly mind, in a materialistic mind. Now, this you are to cease from in your own individual self, for you were not created to follow your own thoughts, conceivings, and imaginings, nor the motions of the flesh, the material world, nor the enticements of the serpent, Satan, but rather another guide is appointed for you, which all that are ignorant of go astray from their you, fortunately. Any comments on that long last passage? Again, he's been talking about himself and what he's saying about others. He's saying that he himself was like that at one time. I'm struck by how unlike those early friends, most of us in their um, willingness to lay it all out, there is very little of what I experienced before I became a friend of the Lord. But what I experienced among other friends, which was, well, Buddha's good, Gandhi's good, Mohammed, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And those early friends certainly didn't have that take, at least not as we've heard so far. I would agree with thee, but there's also one thing I want to say at the same time regarding that, and that is friends even George Fox could see where those who were not Christians on his trip to the American colonies, when he met some Indians, there's only a, a small remark there, but he asked some Indian king, I believe, whether there was something in him that told him what was right and what was wrong. And that was exactly what we would call the spirit of Christ in them, though they did not have that name for it. Even if you could talk about all the other non-Christian religions, friends in their other writings, and even Shuin himself, I think when he, I forget where he'll talk about this. Oh, it may not be in this work. But the point was that Christians are not being true Christians. They're not the Christianity that was there in the first couple of centuries, early Christianity. It's one thing saying you're Christian and being to spout the words, but what your actions are and how they are understood by others is very important. As I said, these three prefaces are very difficult. It's kind of a shock if you're not familiar with reading a lot of early friends' writings to understand they were serious about truth and hypocrisy, and they'd never minced their words. And this caused problems, of course, absolutely. They were, they were adamant. When you really have gotten hold of the truth, if you really have had expressed to you the word of God in you, and you are totally crushed and have come into a completely new way of thinking in terms of being truly transformed, you understand where you were before and where you are now. Perhaps should even read that section over again next time on where William Schoen is talking about himself there as being just like what he was saying about these nominal Christians. Yeah, Henry, I think this kind of points out that being a true Christian is a 24-7 job. Absolutely. Not a occurrence.
Yeah, it's, it's very true. And it's also striking to me how absolutely immersed in scripture they were. They didn't just breeze through a little reading for a few minutes every few days, but almost every paragraph is littered with little bits and pieces that are just woven together. And it's stunning to me how strongly they relied on Scripture. The one thing I would add to that, Kim, is that it's their understanding of Scripture, their interpretation that I find so profound, and I think they got it right. I've had an an interest even before I ever became interested in in, uh, Quakerdom, uh, in early Christianity, and it's the same kind of shock to read some early Christian writings. You say, wow, what does modern Christian denominations have to do with early Christianity? It seems like they're thousands of light years away. The other thing is that in this and Fox and others, they didn't just pick out a verse here and there that, that supported their own point of view. They wove together verses from throughout the scriptures that told the whole story. One sentence or one paragraph could contain something from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, all tying together the whole scripture. Again, it's how they interpreted the scriptures. And I think they got it right. Individuals get it right, but as a group, those friends really understood what was really being said there and how their own lives should be Christ-like. So anyway, as I was saying, these first three prefaces are going to be difficult. Once we get to section one, it will be very different (laughs) in, in many ways. Again, this preface may be a shock to some people if they're not familiar with early friends and their writings. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. So we will be back next week, same time. I should say, does this work that I kind of translate as we go along? I'm not sure how else to do it. We could spend a long time (laughs) on this work. Otherwise, you have the original in front of you, or you can get it easily enough. I'm thankful that Conrad brought up that word redeem, related words, redeemer and redemption, and in, in words like perfect and perfection. There are some of these words, their translations or their understandings have been lost in many other denominations. I like to get back to what early Christians as well as early Quakers understood and just see the power there. It goes in so many other directions too. Because we Quakers, we Christians, don't believe in all the pagan gods, we shouldn't use these pagan names for the days of the week. Sunday and Moon Day and and, uh, Woden's Day and Saturn Day, all those gods. I mean, so we start using numbers instead. The same thing with the months, you know, uh, July, Julius, Caesar, and uh, Augustus and whatever. No, they were quite consistent in how they acted and what they believed in. Okay. All right. Anything else? Well, thank you, everybody. And um, hopefully we'll see you again next week. And thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Henry. Okay. Thank you. Come back. Thank you. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The William Schuen quote, is from his book, The True Christian's Faith and Experience, briefly declared. It can be found on page 77 of the 1830 
MTC Gould publication. That version is in the Educational Media Library of our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.